Beloved, I want you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Romans chapter 8. We're going to begin in verse 26 this morning. We're going to look today at a verse of Scripture that next to John 3.16 is probably the most embroidered, most um, hung up in our homes, probably most quoted verses in all of Scripture. A divine promise of God's certain work to make everything, all things, work together for good for those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. It is a glorious and it's a great promise. But it's not for everyone. So let's stand together and let's read from these words together this morning. And then you can be seated and we'll pray. And we'll dig into this text together this morning. Go back with me. Let's pick it up in verse 26 so we can keep the context. Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Keep going with me. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, this text that we're looking at this morning is some of the greatest words in all of Scripture. This truth that we are looking at this this confident promise that you make to your people. And Lord God, the, the, the what backs it up here, your sovereign <clears throat> glory, your sovereign majesty over all things, and especially your sovereignty and salvation, Lord, it ought to make us stand in awe and amazement and wonder. And I am praying that it would. Father, so often we are so self-consumed and self-absorbed. We're self, you know, aware. And seldom are we as God-aware as we ought to be. Lord, we read a text like this and we realize, again, that we had nothing to do with our salvation except contributing to the sin from which we needed to be saved. You did it all. You hold our souls in your hands. And Father, there is a great comfort and a great certainty that comes with knowing that. 
I am pleading with you this morning, Lord God, that you would help me to preach this word as it needs to be preached. Father, I am inadequate for this task. I am a man of flesh. I am praying, Lord God, that you would give me just the, the, just the fullness of your spirit now, that you would make me to preach, Father God, in such a way that you direct my every thought, you direct my every word, that, Father, you have absolute mastery and control over everything, every aspect of my personality, every, every gift that you have given to me. God, use it for your praise today. And I'm praying... Father, for everyone in this room right now and those that are going to hear this, you know, on the internet, I am praying, Father, that by your grace, you would take your glorious and holy and perfect and inerrant word, the word that sits in judgment upon us and not word that we sit in judgment upon. Father, we are submitted to your truth. I pray you take this word and you would press it home to our hearts. Lord God, I am praying for those in this room right now that are saved, that, Father, you would edify and strengthen them, that you would build them up with the certainty of this promise, that they would go forth in greater confidence today than they had when they walked in this room this morning. But, Lord, I am praying for those who do not know you. I am praying for those who are Christians in name only. I am praying for those here, Father God, that are merely religious. I am praying for those here, God, who think their wisdom is greater than your own, that you would humble them this day, that you would, Father God, bring them to to a realization of their desperate need for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would show them Father, the precarious position in which they are right now, you would show them what they really are in, you know, bondage to sin, and you would bring them, Father, out of the bondage of sin into everlasting life by your perfect, effectual calling. Father, I am asking you to work mightily and powerfully in our midst. Fill this place with your spirit. Father, move mightily and powerfully. And, and Father, in such a way that we can all leave this place today saying, surely we have been in the midst of God. I am praying this, Lord, asking it humbly and entirely in the merit of Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. This morning, beloved, we're looking at one of the great promises in all the Bible, Right? Paul presents it here as something that we know, right? We know, and we know, he says. He presents this as something that we know, something about which Christians can be absolutely confident. And it's this. Look at verse 28 again. We know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, beloved, I want you to see something with me this morning. I want you to see this really quickly. You know, sometimes we treat the word of God as if it's just like a treasure chest of Proverbs. Like it's a bunch of Chinese Proverbs. Like you get, you know, when you go to the Chinese restaurant and they give you a little fortune cookie and you break it open and you pull it out and you read it and there's absolutely no context required. And so we just kind of close our eyes and dip into the Holy Scripture bucket and pull out a verse and just go, yeah, and just apply it however we want. There's a great danger there. You know what the danger is? Anybody? 
You read that verse and you make it say what you want it to say rather than what it actually says. Are you with me? You divorce it from a context and you make it say what you want it to say rather than receiving it for what it actually says, right? This promise doesn't just come out of the blue. This promise isn't like, you know, a proverb from like chapter 28 where they're all kind of disconnected, you know. No. This doesn't just come out of nowhere. It's not just some kind of wishful thinking. This is a divine promise that is rooted and grounded in the truth of the sections by which it is bracketed. What do I mean by that? Well, here's what I mean by that. On one hand, this promise that all things work together for good for those who love God, it is, it is first of all guaranteed by the intimate and the, the personal and perfect and passionate and, and continual intercession of the Holy Spirit for the Christian that we looked at last week on one hand, right? But it is also guaranteed by God's sovereignty in salvation that Paul describes in verses 29 through 30 when he talks about God's personal foreknowledge, which means to forelove someone. When he talks about predestination, when he talks about effectual calling and justification and glorification by which Christians are conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, from the very outset, we need to see that this divine promise is not for all people indiscriminately. Are you with me? It is not for all people indiscriminately. It's only for the children of God, those for whom the Spirit of God intercedes with words that are, that are too deep for, under, for our understanding and for those who have been foreknown and predestined and called and justified and glorified by God through Christ. Sometimes we will hear people say this. You've heard it. It's especially in the South. People, people say this a lot. Not so much up North, but they do it in the South. And I think it's a leftover of being the Bible Belt. People will say things like this. They'll say, well, everything works out in the end. Or everything happens for a reason. Or things work out the way they're supposed to. As if that's supposed to be somehow and it's a source of encouragement, right? I want you to think about that for a second. We throw that around a lot. Think about how that would work in the parts of the world where, say, people are suffering continually or starving or they're sick and dying or they're straining every day to endure and fighting for faith in a faithless world where Christians lose their heads. How's that going to work for them? Hey, you know, just everything works out the way it's supposed to in the end. Thanks for nothing. How is that an encouragement? Those platitudes, that kind of, that, that, that statement that, you know, just, you know, everything happens for a reason. Can I tell you what? That's just worldly, sentimentalized, and ultimately empty knockoffs of the divine promise that Paul is expressing exclusively to God's children in this text. Are you hearing me? This is not some empty platitude. It's a divine promise of eternal proportions. It's doctrine and theology that transcends time and circumstances and human wisdom. So I want to look at it this morning. And my prayer is that 
These words will strengthen our souls and they will sustain and they will encourage us. And if you are not a Christian, my prayer is that these words will confront you and make you see just how much you need Christ. Look at them again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, I want, you, I want you to consider the opening words of this promise with me. I want you to consider the opening words of this promise. And we know, right? The word and obviously connects this verse to what we've just been studying, right? And I want you to notice the deliberate contrast that Paul is making, right? In the previous verses, Paul has just been describing us as the people who don't know, right? Right? We don't know how to pray for, you know, what to pray for as we ought. We don't know, right? We don't have a clue. So many times we're not sure how we ought to pray or, or what we should pray for or what is God's will in a certain situation. But Paul is telling us something. He's telling us that there's something that we can know, that we can know with absolute certainty, that we can hang our hat on every time, that we can be absolutely confident of. Something upon which we can trust, rest our souls. And it's this, that God, that God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. There's a timeless truth for Christians that is unchangeable and is unchanging. He's not dealing with vain hopes here, beloved. He's not dealing with, with empty human philosophy. He's not dealing with, oh, I wish it were this way. He's telling us how it is. He's dealing in divine truth. And that divine truth is God works all things together for good, for the good of his children. Now I want to make sure we understand what Paul is saying here. When he says all things work together for good, what does he mean? What is he talking about? What does this all things encompass, right? Like what is he, what is he getting at? I want you to see with me that he does not, he's not saying that all things just automatically work together. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that just everything that happens, just by itself, of its own accord, just because the way the universe is, that everything just kind of always tends to the good of the Christian. Beloved, all things just don't happen to turn out on their own. We are not living in a world of just like positive circumstances all the time. Just little quinky dinks that take place that turn out good. That's not what he's talking about. All things don't happen to just work out on their own. That's not it at all. The idea is that God is actively involved. It's that he's actively steering. It's that he is actively and providentially working and weaving all things together in such a way as they turn out for the ultimate good of his people all the time. Well, two questions arise then. First of all, what is the good toward which God is working all things? And then second, what does all things include? Well, what's the good first? Let's talk about that. What's the good that Paul is speaking about here? When we think of good, what do we think about? Well, naturally, what we think about, because we live in this world, right? And we're, you know, influenced by it. Naturally, when we think of good, what we so often think of are things like good health, right? Or financial security. That's good. 
Food on the table, that's good. Right? Successfully attaining our goals. Having a good marriage. Having, quote unquote, good kids. Having good relationships, right? Having a satisfying job, a nice place to live, and so on, right? Our view of good is very often only as high as our eyebrows, right? I mean, our view of good is earthly and related to our circumstances in this life, right? The good life. Beloved, we need to understand good in the way that God employs it, right? We need to understand good in the way that God defines it. See, we don't have the freedom to just take words out of Scripture and define them however we want and then say, God, you're not being fair because you're not doing good to me the way I think you ought to be doing good. Right? What does God mean when he speaks of what is good? Well, God's definition of good, beloved, is given at the verse of, end of verse 29. And God's good is this. Look at it. End of verse 29. His good is that we would be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God's good for us, beloved. God's good for us transcends the human conception of the good life. It transcends, you know, the, the, the human conception of what, you know, ought to be, what is pleasing to us as, 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 as sinners. Look. It's something far grander. God's good is far greater. It is far more glorious. And it's not subject to decay or rot or rust or reversal. It is not limited to this present age. Are you hearing me? God's promise, God's purpose, His good for us is that we should be conformed to the image of His perfect Son and our Savior, and that we should become like Christ in our thinking and in our acting and in our character and in our nature in every single way that the creature can possibly be conformed to the image of His Creator, Redeemer, and Lord, and that it should be so for all of eternity. There is nothing greater, nothing more gooder than that. That's the idea. Nothing that's good in the way that this is good. God is not just for our temporal good. He's not just for our temporal happiness. God is not just for our temporal satisfaction and our temporal comfort. God is for our eternal good, our ultimate good, to be conformed to the image of Christ so that Jesus Christ, our Lord, might be the firstborn among many brothers so that He'd be glorified. That's what He's about. In fact, that word firstborn in Greek... That word firstborn in the Greek is the word prototokos. It means to be the first in rank. It means to hold supremacy. It means to be recognized as as the one who holds all primacy and all preeminence above all other people. That's what it means to be the firstborn. That's what prototokos means. In other words, the good towards which God is working is this. That again, we would be fully conformed to the image of Christ that we would be glorified in Him and with Him so that Christ would be exalted and magnified as supremely glorious before all of the entire, throughout, before the entire universe. In other words, God is at work for our spiritual good so that Christ will be glorified as He should. Let me say it again. God is at work for our spiritual good so that Christ will be glorified as He should. And that good toward which God is passionately 
energetically, personally working in our lives with divine resolve and divine purpose is that we would be fully and finally conformed to the image of Christ so that in all things He'll be preeminent and exalted in worship. All things work together for our good and for Christ's glory. Well, what about the all things? What does all things encompass? What does that include? Well, it's just that. It's all things. It's everything. In fact, this is a very comprehensive phrase. It takes in every aspect of our lives. In other words, here's what Paul is saying. God works every single thing in our lives, every single situation, every action, Everything that we either do or we endure. He works everything that we can possibly think in our lives toward this end. That it includes such things as, for instance, His provision for our needs. It includes His blessings and His gifts of grace. It includes His answered prayers. It includes our faithful and, and joyous fellowship with the saints. It includes our hearing and reading the Word of God. It, it includes the, the work of the Holy Spirit in applying the Word to our lives. And in building us up in the faith. It includes our triumphs over temptation. It includes the leading of the Spirit and our spiritual successes, right? It, it includes all those good things, right? But it also includes... All the things that we classify as bad. It includes such things as persecution or trials that we didn't ask for or losses or betrayals. It includes sins committed against us. It includes sickness and suffering and hardships. Beloved, it includes the things that we find discouraging and disheartening and disappointing. It includes the most difficult, most painful, most, you know, scarring experiences that you have had in your life if you are in Christ. It includes all of those things. God is not absent in those moments. God is not standing off far away watching those moments callously or uncaringly. In fact, there's... There's much that God shields us from that we aren't even aware. But the point that Paul is making is this. Is that all of those things, whether they seem good or bad, however we qualify them, God is working them, weaving them all together For our ultimate good, if you are in Christ. 
It's not all sweetness and ease, is it? Listen, man, life is not butterflies and puppies and unicorns. It's not safe spaces. It's not everybody affirm me or else. That's not life. That's imaginary. That's why you have people that, you know, when it's not butterflies and unicorns and they actually get out of college and there's no safe spaces to go and hide in and they, they don't get to put off the, the final exam because an election went the way they didn't want it to go. Or they get into the experience of real life. Listen, that's why you have people that just shut down. I, I, I can't. I just can't. How many times do you hear people say that? I just can't with this. Oh, sit down. Really? First world problems. Well, life is not easy. There are good, joyous, wonderful things. There are also very hard, difficult things. And you know what? You're not abandoned. You're not left alone. If you're in Christ, God is with you, and He is working all those things together. He's weaving them all together for one end goal in mind that you would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and that Christ would be glorified. Well, that means my life should go pretty easily, shouldn't it? No. In fact, take five minutes and read the lives of the apostles, right? It always kills me when I I listen to these prosperity preachers that are like, you know, prophesying prosperity over everybody. I'm like, you ever read Paul? I'm just asking. Betting no, but asking. Wanting to be magnanimous, you know. Peter and Paul lost their lives for Christ. So did so many martyrs. It's not all easy. And I'm not saying that that some, you know, that bad things are good in and of themselves, right? I mean, look, nobody would say that persecution or cancer or family strife or financial reversal or sickness or suffering or any other people's sins against us, that they are good in and of themselves. I mean, nobody normal would say that, right? But the point is this, is that God overrules even those things for your good. That's the point. Even our sin, listen to me now, even our sin, God makes to work for our good. Now, I want to be very careful when I say this because I don't want to give you the wrong impression. Don't misunderstand me, right? It's not like, hey, sin it up so that God does good out of that. It's not what I'm saying. Sin is, is evil. Right? It's wicked. It's foul and it's rebellious and it's wretched. And we are called, we are commanded to, to avoid sin and pursue holiness because of the offense that sin is against the holy God and again, you know, our, our, and our Father. And because of its dreadful effects, both to those around us and in the life of us who have been redeemed and rescued from its condemning power. Like there's never an excuse for sin. Don't misunderstand me. Sin never of itself works good in any of our lives. But, but, because of the irresistible 
and omnipotent goodness of our God and His grace and His favor toward His children, God turns even our sin toward the good purpose of conforming us to the image of Christ. Well, how does He do that? Here's how He does it. By convicting and humbling us of our sin. Through our confession of our weakness and and our still indwelling sinfulness, through our confession and our repentance, through our renewed prayers for the guidance and the overwhelming grace of the Holy Spirit, right? Through greater vigilance and sober-mindedness in us and by pointing us yet again to the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. That's how God does it. Sin is never good. But even sin is no match for the providence of God. In His generous mercy, He turns even sin to our good. That's the power of God in His many-sided grace. Even our sins are made to work for our ultimate good. God's working all things together. All things together for the good of His children so that we would be increasingly and ultimately conformed to the image of Christ, and so that Christ would be glorified and exalted as the firstborn among many brothers. That's the great goal. Not a life of ease, but eternal life in Christ. Robert Haldane says this. I like the way he puts this. He says, If all things work together for good... There's nothing within the compass of being that is not, in one way or another, advantageous to the children of God. All the attributes of God, all the offices of Christ, all the gifts and the graces of the Holy Spirit are combined for the Christian's good. The creation of the world, the fall and the redemption of man, all the dispensations of providence, whether prosperous or adverse, all occurrences and events, all things... Whatsoever they be, work for their good. They work together in their efficacy, in their unity, and in their connection. They do not work thus of themselves. It is God that turns all things to the good of His children. But again, beloved, This promise isn't for everybody. This promise is not for everyone. It's not just a generic promise that extends to all of humanity indiscriminately. The one who hates God, the one who rejects Christ, listen, all things work together to his or her condemnation and guilt. You're hearing me. There's no silver lining, okay? There's no, there's no happy ending. There's no guarantee that everything will work out for the good of unbelievers. Instead, there's the guarantee that at the end of faithlessness lies eternal judgment and an eternal hell. This promise is for Christians only. It's exclusive. It's discriminating. It's limited. People don't like that. People think that when they read Scripture, the promises of Scripture should be for everybody. Or God's not fair. One. Number one. God doesn't care to be viewed by you as fair according to your definition of fair. You don't get to determine what God is. I'm going to say this again. 
No one in this room gets to determine who or what God is. You don't get to. Like, you might have this, well, I don't like this about God. Well, it doesn't matter because God's not changing for you or anybody. God defines who he is, doesn't he? He defines who he is from his word. He also defines who his promises are made to, who they're for. And his promises of life are for his people alone. That's it. And you might say, well, that's narrow. I'm just the messenger. Take it up with God. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. And few there be to find it. This promise is, it's unique only to Christians. And, and Paul describes those Christians, those people to whom this promise is made in two specific ways. I want you to see this. This is very important. This isn't just like Paul showing you how wonderfully, you know, brilliant he is. This is, this is important because it speaks to the very heart of what we're reading. First of all, he refers to Christians as those who love God. And why do you think Paul refers to Christians with that phrase? It's the first time he's referred to Christians that way in this entire book. So why is he doing it now? Why doesn't he just go back to like his old standbys, like those who are in Christ or those who are the sons of God or those who are the saints, right? Or believers. Why does he say, God works all things together for those who love God? God works all things together for good for those who love God. Why that? Beloved, I think he does so for a couple of reasons. First of all, he does it, I think, to draw a fundamental distinction between Christians and those who are lost, right? I mean, what he's saying and what he's getting at here is that only Christians truly love God. All the humanity, apart from the grace of God, they're haters of God. They're haters of the God as revealed in Scripture. That's what Scripture tells us. Paul has just talked about their enmity with God. He's just about talk, just talked about the enmity of the mind that is focused on the flesh, right? Apart from Christ, all of humanity, apart from God's grace, they're at enmity with God. They are depraved. They're hostile toward Him. They're walking in the flesh. They're rejecting the God who has revealed Himself both generally in creation, but also in a special way in the Word of God. Isn't that true? And in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might say, but I know a lot of people who say they love God. So do I. A lost sinner can claim to love God. But the God he loves is one of his own invention. The God he loves is one that he's fashioned in his mind according to the way that he thinks God ought to be. A God who, interestingly enough, does exactly what he or she thinks he should do. A God who, boy, is this a coincidence, always has the same opinion as he or she does. A God who affirms him in everything that he does. A false, flat, one-dimensional caricature of the true God. Charles Spurgeon rightly said this. Now, there are many things in which the worldly and the godly do agree. Not so much anymore, maybe in his day. There are many things in which the worldly and the godly do agree. But on this point, 
There's a vital difference. No ungodly man loves God, at least not in the Bible sense of the term. An unconverted man may love a God as, for instance, the God of nature, the God of his imagination, but the God of revelation no man can love unless grace has been poured into his heart to turn him from that natural enmity of heart towards God in which all of us are born. He's right, isn't he? A Christian is one who loves God, who loves the God whom Scripture reveals and not the God of our own imagination. The second reason that Paul uses this designation, those who love God, or better yet, those who are loving God, which is really what that says in the Greek. It's a present active participle. The second reason is to show that being a Christian is not merely a matter of having the right theology. I'm going to say that again. Being a Christian is not a matter of just having the right theology. It is not a matter of just having the right belief system or being able to speak Christianese. I can speak pig Latin. That doesn't make me a pig or Latin. It's not even merely a matter of sentiment and feeling. It's more than that. It's more than that. The Lord Jesus Christ told us that the greatest commandment was what? The Lord, your God, our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with what? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's a pretty encompassing statement, isn't it? Isn't it? The love that he's describing encompasses the entirety of our being, doesn't it? Every facet of it. And so when Paul speaks this promise that all things work together for good for those who love God, there is content to that statement. There is a delimiting aspect to that statement. It doesn't just include everyone in the world, but those who actually do love God. Nor does it include everyone who claims to love God, but those who have the definite marks in their lives of loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. There are marks that are evident in the life of someone who loves God. Again, it's more than an emotion. I think we need to have this drilled into our heads. And I'll tell you why. We have, we now in this society, some of you older folks, not so much, but in our society today, we have a very shallow view of friendship. We have a very shallow view of what love consists of. We have a very shallow view of what it means to like, you know, be somebody's brother or sister. We have a very shallow view of what unity means. We have a very shallow view of all of those things. And in particular, our shallow view of love and our shallow view of friendship, they combine together to rob us of lives that actually demonstrate 
real love and friendship. Because when I can get on the internet and just click a heart, or I can get on the internet and flatter you for what you did today, or I can get, with no cost to me at all, with no, no sacrifice at all, with no real action at all, except the clickety-clack of my fingers. It robs us of what real love truly is. And so we take that into Christianity. And we think that love consists in words or affirmations or certain feelings that I have towards God rather than being defined by actions. You hearing me? It's the reason so many marriages fail. Because everybody loves people in their mind. Whenever they get married, oh, I love you so much. I love you, love you better than anybody in the whole world. I love you. And then real life sets in. And was it really love or was it just infatuation? Was it really love or was it just some something you ate? No, really. Was it really love of the person or love of the idea? I think all of us need to ask ourselves that question seriously. What's real love look like? Because when we talk about loving God, when he, there are marks, man, to loving God. There are definite marks. And, and it's not whether you feel tingly and mushy on the inside when Jesus is mentioned. I, I always get really uncomfortable when people, when pastors start talking about falling in love with Jesus. Now, Jesus is not your boyfriend. No, he's not. I mean it. Jesus is not your boyfriend. He's the sovereign Lord and Savior and Redeemer of sinners. And yes, he loves you. And you are to love him. But that love should have a far greater content than the love that you have, teenage girls, for Harry Styles. What are the marks of really loving God? Well, one of the marks is this, is that those who love God as a pattern of life and as an earnest desire, they keep his commandments, don't they? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's pretty open and shut, wouldn't you say? Apostle John says, whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way as he walked. Those who love God, beloved, they love the children of God, right? Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor, Romans 12, verse 10. Those who love God, they love and they pray for their enemies, Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. Those who love God hold fast to him in all the circumstances of life, whether they're good or bad. They know his name. They know that they know his character. They trust in him. They call upon him in prayer. They find in him a faithful God in the midst of trouble. They desire his approval above all others. They find supreme satisfaction in him. 
Well, why do I say that? Because Psalm 91, verses 14 through 16 says this. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Beloved, those who love God have a deep confidence in him and in his ways. Psalm 31 says, Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Those who love God hate evil. They hate evil. Oh, you who love the Lord, Psalm 97, 10, hate evil. Those who love God love His Word and His glory. Psalm 138, verse 2, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks for your name and to your steadfast love and your faithfulness, for you exalted above all things your name and your word. Those who love God seek to love Him with an undivided love. To love Him first and above all others. They take the commandment to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. They take that seriously. Like that's not just some unattainable goal. Like that's something I want to do. They delight in fellowship with Him. Psalm 63 verses 1 through 8 describe wonderfully the heart of somebody who really loves God. Oh God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. Not passive. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. I've looked upon you in the sanctuary. Beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. When's the last time you talked to God like that? These and more are the marks of loving God. It's not just emotion. It includes that. But beloved, it issues forth in real action. Those who love God are not just merely religious. They're not merely the church corps. And they're not nominal Christians. Just because you carry the name Christian, you've chosen to identify as a Christian, doesn't make you one. They're defined by love for God, Christians are. Not perfect love. Like None of us would ever stand up and say, you know what? I, this week, have loved God perfectly. Would anybody say that? Of course not. But nevertheless, in a Christian, there's a real and a growing and an abiding love for God that's manifest in our lives and real and concrete ways. The marks are there, right? That show that we treasure and delight in the God that's revealed in the Bible. And for those who love God, all, thing, all things work together for good. There's one more thing I want to talk out, point out, pull out real quick. I think the reason, one other reason that Paul uses this description of those who love God is because, you know what? Our love for God is often tested both in adversity and in prosperity, isn't it? Isn't it? You know how it's tested in adversity. You know, in adversity, it's this. You know, when, 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 when we have adverse things happen in our lives, we start questioning, man, do we really love and trust God amidst all of our circumstances? Do we really? 
Do we really, you know, hold fast to him in faith, believing that he's working even the hard and the difficult things in our lives for our ultimate good? Or do we complain against his providence? Do we complain against the situation that we're in? Do we complain, you know, of whatever's befallen us? Or do we trust God? I would say to you, one is the response of a heart that really loves God. And the response of the other is one that would rather use God. Not always. We can all fall in sin. But I'm saying, in general, if that's your response, if your response to adversity adversity is to blame God and question God, what is he doing? And that's your general response, your, 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 your pattern of response to God. Then I would say that you have a God that you don't love. You have a God that you'd like to use. And if he doesn't, if he's not up to snuff, you'd be probably willing to trade him in for another one that goes by the same name. As long as you could keep your standing amongst other, quote, Christians, unquote. It's tested in prosperity too, isn't it? Our love for God. What's the test? The test becomes this. Do I love God or do I love the gifts of God? Do I love God for who he is or do I love God for this smooth patch that I'm in? Am I grateful to God because, you know, I love God because, you know, he's right now he's got me, you know, on a, on a calm sea. Is that what I love? The peace and the ease and the comfort? Or do I love God in all circumstances? Does my love for him Eclipse the good circumstances of my life or does prosperity dull my love for God? But I don't want us to read this promise wrongly. I don't want us to misunderstand it. Loving God is not a condition. Like, as long as you are really loving God well, then He will work everything out for your good. But as soon as you stop loving Him really good, then He's going to start letting things unravel. That's not the idea here. Loving God here is not a condition. It's the description of a true Christian. Are you hearing me? It's not a conditional thing. It's the description of somebody who's truly a Christian. And that description then begs this question that we've got to ask. Do I love God? Do I really love Him? Are the marks there? Man, do I love the God of the Bible and not the God of my invention? Is my love more than sentiment or is it revealed in my living? Again, this is important because the promise of all things working together for good is not for those who know the right theology or those who simply go to church or those who have the name of Christian without the evidence. It's for those who are Christians, who are defined by their love for God. And the only reason that a Christian loves God is the next thing that Paul says. It's because we have been called according to his purpose there's a reason beloved there's a special reason that anyone loves god it's not because that we just love god i've always loved god people say that man i've always loved god no you haven't no you haven't how can you say that 
Well, it's not my opinion. It's what the Bible says. The Apostle John says over in 1 John chapter 4, right? Starting in verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into this world so that we might live through Him. And why did God do that? Because we loved Him so much. Nope. And this is love. Not that we have loved God. Yeah, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In verse 19, we love. Why? Because He, you finish it, first loved us. He first loved us. We love God. We're lovers of God. Because He loved us first with a sovereign, electing, saving, purifying, sanctifying personal love. And Paul describes the outworking of God's love toward us in verses 29 through 30. Things that God has done. He says, for those whom He foreknew. Again, that word means foreloved. Loved. Before. Before what? Before the foundation of the world. He also predestined. Marked out the boundaries of their lives to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those are the five golden links of God's sovereign salvation of his people. And we'll talk more about them next week. We will dig into those Those wonderful truths next week. But this morning, I just want to focus on Paul's description here of a Christian as those who are called according to his purpose. What does it mean to be called by God? That term calling, beloved, is described by theologians in two ways. As the general call and as the effectual call. And there's a difference. The general call is when I stand up here and preach. Or whenever you share the gospel with somebody. And when you describe the personal condemnation that everybody is under apart from the grace of God. That we are all sinners deserving of wrath. And you speak to them of the of the saving work of Christ and his life of perfect obedience and his death that he died that we deserved on the sinner's behalf and then you call them to repent of their sin and to come to faith in Christ that's the general call you speak it with earnestness you speak it with all that your your heart can contain but you don't have the power to make someone respond to the gospel message right right we urge them to believe, but you don't have the power. If I had the power, well, that'd be easy, right? We don't have that. That's the general call. But Paul is describing here something, that it, something that's called the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. It's the effectual call of the Holy Spirit through the gospel to saving faith in Christ. That, that effective call, that effectual call. Most times it takes place in the context of the general call. It's through the preaching of the Word of God. And by the working of the Holy Spirit, God moves to bring life and to give life through the very words that are being preached. 
He calls sinners out of the darkness and the blindness of their sin. He takes away their heart of stone. He gives them a heart of flesh. He gives them grace to spiritually and savingly understand the truth of the gospel. He renews their wills that are in bondage to sin. There's no such thing as free will. Where you just can choose whatever you feel like choosing. However you'd like to do it. Before Christ, your sin, your will is in bondage to sin. And the Holy Spirit comes through the preaching of the Word and He changes your desires. And He makes you willing to come to Christ. And He creates within your heart the very faith by which you fully and freely lay hold of Jesus as Savior and Lord, thereby changing the entire disposition of your heart from hatred or apathy toward God to fervent love for your Savior, making you a child of God and making you a Christian. It is a sovereign, gracious work of God that no man can work up on his own. That's why God gets all the glory, right? Salvation's of the Lord. It's not 50, 50% God and 50% you so that in heaven, half the time the angels are worshiping you and half the time they're worshiping God. No. Salvation's all of God. Apart from God's grace, your eyes, your ears, your blindness, your deafness would have never been taken away. And you would have continued down the path of sin and perdition until you found yourself in hell. God's the one. God's the one. Christian is somebody who's been called by God to life in Christ through the mysterious working of the Holy Spirit. He's got to do it. Without the effectual calling of salvation, none of us would be saved because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Our will is in bondage to sin and it's in bondage to the prince of the power of the air. We've got no ability to choose Christ, nor would we. Fallen man doesn't just wake up one day and say, oh, you know what? I, you know, I'm going to start loving God today. You know, I realize, you know, I've been thinking about it. I see the error of my ways. I'm going to make a change right now. It's not like we're Michael Jackson. I'm starting with the man in the mirror. No. It's not in us to do it. We know that because Paul says earlier, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I'm the exception. No, you're not. Only in your mind. God is faithful, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Then in verses 22 through 24. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called. Both Jews and Greeks. Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. What makes the difference? The effectual calling of God. God's the one who, through the Holy Spirit, effectually calls Christians to salvation. His call is what changes us from a hater of God to a lover of God. Charles Spurgeon said it so well. He says this so powerfully, so pointedly. He says, The gospel is preached in the ears of all men, but it only comes with power to some. The power that's in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher. Otherwise... Men would be converters of souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning. Otherwise, it could consist 
you know, in the, of the wisdom of men. We might preach until our tongues rotted, till we should exhaust our lungs and die. But never a soul would be converted unless there was a mysterious power going with it, the Holy Ghost changing the will of man. Oh, sirs, we might as well preach to stone walls as preach to humanity unless the Holy Ghost be with the word to give it power and to convert the soul. He's right. Nobody loves God except he or she is called by God to eternal life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ until God brings home to the heart and to the soul and to the mind the gospel of Jesus Christ. No man or woman can love God, the true God, until God is shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But when God calls, when God calls, when God calls a sinner, when God effectually calls a sinner to salvation, there is no power on earth that can resist or frustrate his summons from death unto life, from unbelief to faith, and from sin unto salvation. Nothing. Nothing. God's purpose from the etern- from eternity. The good of His people and the glory of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a part of that divine plan, Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. We know, beloved, with absolute certainty that no matter what we face, no matter what we endure, no matter what encompasses our lives, God is working all things for good for those of us who love God and who know it is so because we who love God have been loved by God first and been graciously and effectually called by Him out of death into life. We've heard the gospel and we've responded. His goal is to make us like Jesus and to glorify Jesus higher than anyone else. So taking this all together, what do we know? What do we come away from with this? What do we come away from this text with? First, beloved, our sovereign and omnipotent Father. Remember, Father, right? We have the spirit of adoption. He's our Father. Fathers mean good for their children. Good fathers mean good for their children, right? Right? Good fathers. Well, the greatest father of all is providentially turning everything in our lives as his children to one great purpose from us. He doesn't depart from it. He's not going to be deterred or frustrated. It's his will for us that everything will work toward that ultimate goal, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ and that Christ would be exalted because we are his children, because we're the recipients of his fatherly love and also because he loves the Lord Jesus Christ and has decreed that he should be exalted with the name above Every single name, we can be certain that God's decree and His determined purpose, because of His love for us, because of His love for His Son, and because of His determination to glorify Christ to the highest, we can be certain that His decree and His determined purpose cannot be thwarted in our lives. Not by human sin, not by anything, because He's the God who cannot lie. Because His promise is absolute and it cannot fail. In all the verities of our lives, God is powerfully, ceaselessly, irresistibly at work for our good, even though we cannot always see it or cannot always understand His ways. His promise stands sure. Put your feet there and don't move. Be confident. 
And again, this promise is not for all people. It's only for those who are in Christ, those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. This divine promise is not just, you know, just just spewed out into the air by Paul. It is rooted in the facts of God's sovereign, steadfast, and special covenant love for His people. It's rooted in the work of Christ, in His purpose, in God's purpose to conform His children to the image of Jesus and bring us to heaven. God works everything together for our good as His children. The question is, do you believe it? Are you certain of it? Do you trust in Him? If you do, this ought to be one of the most comforting truths of the Bible. Second thing is this. This promise, I want you to think what divine weight it had for the Roman Christians who first heard it. (laughs) The Roman Christians weren't living in America, you know, even 21st century America. They were living in, (laughs) under a reign and a rule and a dominion that was constantly persecuting them, constantly hunting them down, constantly removing from them good things and bringing to them bad consequences. They were living in a world that was seeking to undo their faith in Christ continually. And they would hear... How in the world could Paul say, all things work together for good for those who love God and are the called according to His purpose? How could he say that to people that were suffering left and right? Because it's true. That's how he could say it. Because he himself had been in their shoes. And this had strengthened him and seen him through. What an encouragement it was to them. What an encouragement it is to our brothers and sisters in other nations, in this, in this world. As they patiently endure in faithfulness to Christ at such a severe cost, Right? And what weight it ought to have for us as we live in a world and an age that is seemingly ever more unstable, right? You know, things changed dramatically in our country two years ago, and it's never going back. It's never going back. It's never going to be. People are always like, I just want it to go back to the way it was. Has it? Has it? No, it hasn't. And it's not going to. You know, so much was revealed just even two years ago. The massive corruption of human government at every level. The greed of the pharmaceutical industry. The deliberate and the coordinated deception of the media and social media. The violence. The hysteria. The massive delusion of our society. The frail and the insecure nature of our nation. And even of the visible church. The tenuous nature of life. Man, we desperately need this promise in a volatile age in which we live. The comfortable, normal, quote-unquote, that once was, no longer is. And no, we would be driven to despair and depression and to, you know, foolishness. Did we not know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who who are called according to His purpose? Beloved, listen, we're exiles and strangers in this world, and that's all we're ever going to be until Christ comes back. We're exiles and strangers. And God is weaving everything together, all things for His purpose and for our ultimate good. It might not be easy to see at times, but it's the bedrock truth on which to build our lives. Don't be shaken. I know sometimes it seems hard to believe that that in this world and in our lives, things are actually progressing in a good way toward the end. But they are. They really are. Even if it's not apparent to us. I remember back when I was in high school, 
some of you all that are around my age, you remember this. I remember back when I was in high school, there was this new watch company that came out, Swatch Watches. You guys know those? Ever heard of those? I don't even know if they still exist anymore, that company. But they were the big thing for a while when I was in high school because they had these watches that were transparent. You could look in there and you could see these wheels and gears moving and everything. It was so cool, you know. And you'd look in there and you'd see one wheel moving one way and another one moving another and one moving fast and another one moving slow and, you know, different gears and stuff. And they seemed to be moving at cross purposes and different directions and seemingly out of sync with one another. And yet, wouldn't you know it, it kept perfect time. How in the world did that happen? It's because the watchmaker designed all those gears and all those wheels toward one purpose, toward keeping proper time. And in that same way, God is working all things together. Things that, that seem in our limited understanding to be opposite purposes to one another. Good and bad, right? Beautiful and grotesque, pure and impure, comfort and, and hardship, ease and trial, health and sickness, success and failure, wealth and poverty, obedience and sin, you know, our sin and others. Listen, all of these things... Though they seem to be at cross purposes, God is working together by His grace and by His wisdom for the ultimate good of our conformity to Christ and to His eternal glory as the firstborn among many brothers. He's faithful and beloved. He will do it. In fact, He's moving all of our lives, every Christian's life towards that goal. Look, our circumstances, our experiences... Our situations are not going to be the same. I want to just say that to you. Sometimes some Christians get mad at other Christians because they don't go through the same trials and hardships that they go through and they wonder sometimes why they should, why, why they don't, because they ought to. And the fact that you're chuckling a little bit no, means I just struck a nerve, right? We think everybody has it easier than us. We don't really know what they've got going on in their lives. We just assume. You know what they say about that. I won't say it because I'll get kicked out. But we, we assume that. But I want you to hear me when I say this. Our circumstances and our experiences and our situations are not the same because you and I are not identical people. We don't all have the same story. And what God seems, what God deems to be necessary to bring into my life may not be what God brings into yours. Not exactly. And vice versa. And some may seem to have it harder while others seem to have it easier. Listen to me, there is no cookie-cutter Christian experience. Our lives are not the exact same. They're not. We're called to be of one mind and one heart. But there's no promise of one circumstance, same circumstances. Our lives aren't the exact same, but you know what is identical for all of us? The promise. The promise. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. So I close with this. Beloved, do you love God? Do you know that you have been effectually called by the Holy Spirit to true and saving faith in Christ? Do you love the God who is and not the God of your imagination? Do you love the God that Scripture describes? Do you know you belong to Him? Are you confident of it? 
If so, then you don't need to worry. You need to have no fear nor, nor be anxious because no matter what's happening in your life, you can have this great confidence that God is working all things together for your good. You can rejoice knowing that there's no power in all creation that will ever stop God from doing what he has purposed in himself before the creation of the world to bring you to salvation, to conform you to the image of Christ and to glorify and to exalt Jesus Christ with the name that is above all names so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on earth, under the earth, and in heaven and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father because of his love for you, his love for Christ, and his longing for Christ's glory to be displayed. God will make this promise to come to full fruition for all of us who are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful. I'm really thankful for your holy word. I'm thankful for the truth of your scripture. I'm thankful for the way, Lord God, that your word is both encouraging, it is just life-giving but your word is also challenging it also calls us to examine ourselves to examine our lives and our hearts before you father i am praying that for those who are truly in christ and the evidences of loving god are there in their lives and they see them And they know that they have been called because they have responded to the gospel in repentance and in faith and with a faith that is lasting and living and real. God, I pray that these words would be such a great encouragement to them. I pray, Father God, that it would give them hope and give them a, a realization of what is truly good. It's not just a life on this earth. It's eternal life with you forever in heaven. That's good. That's the ultimate good. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would take these words for those who are in Christ and you'd you'd, you'd, you'd steal their hearts, give give steel to their spine and, and strengthen their hearts and their souls and make them to rejoice, Lord God, that you would speak such a promise to people such as us. Thank you. We praise you for it. Lord, help us to see all of our lives through this lens. And for those who are here this morning, Lord God, who are not in Christ, I pray, Lord, that they would understand that there's another end that awaits them. It's not ultimate good. Father, it is ultimate loss. That at the end of faithlessness, at the end of rejection of Christ, There lies not a promise that things are going to be better. There lies a promise that things will be as bad as they can possibly be. There is the promise of eternal death and eternal judgment and the never-ending torture of hell. I pray that for those who are nominal Christians and don't know it, that, Lord, you'd show it to them today. I don't know who they might be, but you do. I pray that you'd make them to examine these two descriptions that Paul has used 
in the Scripture, those who love God and those who are called, and Father, they would examine themselves to see, is the mark of love for God really in my life? Is it, is it the dominant mark? Is it real? Do I know I've been called because I've responded to the gospel and I, I believe the truth of God, what God says about me, what God says about me before I'm saved and what God says about me when I am saved. God, I pray that you'd move in our hearts today for the sake of your glory, for the praise of Christ's name, move in our hearts, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.